Hi everyone, this is John and TJ. Welcome to Season 3 of ALN Math Talk. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of math. Please help us spread our All Learners mission of cultivating a community of educators that promote math equity and inclusion for all students. Tell your friends, your colleagues, maybe your principal. Let them know that we're out here doing good for the children of the United States and beyond. Please check out our website, alllearnersnetwork.com, for free resources and some amazing math professional development opportunities. Those are all under the events tab. And we are recording this conversation in September of 2022, and our fall events are all online through December. Today, we are joined by Karen Pregodich from Newburgh, Oregon, which uh, TJ tells me is a suburb of Portland. Her doctorate is in educational leadership and curriculum and instruction from Portland State University. She is currently an independent curriculum and professional learning consultant. Welcome, Karen. We're so glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your background and your math journey. How did you end up where you are today? Oh, gosh. Um, the short version is that I was one of those kids who was told I was good at math, and I hated it because it was just a series of procedures to learn, and that series of procedures never seemed to end. So I quit math as soon as I could, and once I started teaching, I went to actually a Marilyn Burns workshop. Oh, yeah. The first time math was opened up to me to kind of lift the curtain and see the actual beauty of the mathematics behind all of these zillions of procedures that I had learned. And that started me on uh, kind of a professional quest to figure out how do we make sure that kids have access to this from the very early stages and not learning that for the first time as an adult like I did. Um, so I've worn a lot of different hats. I've been a, a classroom teacher. I taught uh, at the university level math methods and, and uh, child development courses for about 10 years. I've been an instructional coach, a district math specialist, um, done consulting work with districts around the country. So um, really had this desire to see what can we do to ensure that every student has access to meaningful mathematics learning. Which, which of those many jobs was your fave? You know, um, I have learned things from each of those. You know, I miss the classroom, the sense of community that's there. Uh, I think working with pre-service teachers at the university level is really exciting. Yeah, it's really um, fun. To introduce them to a lot of the, the research and, and what that actually looks like to model that for them. Coaching, I had the ability to come alongside teachers and help them um, grow in this sort of one-on-one -on -one context, modeling lessons in classrooms, collaborating with them, uh, that district level leadership of how do you create a system mm -hmm. within a district, build capacity within a district. Um, so all of those different things that I've done have played into my understanding of what this looks like. Now what I love is taking all of that experience and background and working with schools and teachers around the country to say, how do we apply all that here in your context? What are your needs and challenges and how do we um, 
help you systemically move toward that type of instruction? Well, we're going to ask you a lot more about that. But to start with, um, I was looking at your dissertation materials getting ready for our interview. It, it was, I, I experienced a little PTSD. Um, it's a, for, some, it's, for those out there, or the, the thousands of listeners out there who have never written a dissertation, it, it's a lot of work. Um, but what, what did you discover that you thought was interesting? What was the process like for you? Why do a dissertation? Why do uh, a terminal degree? <laughs> well, <laughs> I asked myself that question a lot. It took <laughs> yeah. me almost 10 years to make it through. A lot of, a lot of life happened in there. But um, I, I think, you know, now I look back and once you, you know, finally make it over that hurdle, you realize how much you you learn through that process, um, and you know I I can look back and I was so excited at these high quality instructional materials start coming out, and I thought this is it, right? We could get these materials into the hands of teachers, and kids are going to have access to this learning, and this is what we need. You know, we've got strong research-based standards. We just write some materials to, you know, align with those and go, you know, press play and we'll see the, the outcomes. And of course, the reality is that um, they help, you know, students in schools that have um, access to high quality instruction materials have more opportunity to learn, more opportunity to be successful but it really comes down to implementation. Yep. And so the, the doctoral program allowed me to dive deeply into that question of what affects that implementation. And as someone who is you know, dedicating my life to coming alongside teachers and districts that are trying to implement things correctly, you know, effectively, how can I best support them to make sure that that implementation happens? So, you know, over all of those years of the doctorate, you dive into this deep research literature of, you know, brilliant thinkers who are laying a foundation for your work. And then you have the time and the opportunity and the motivation to um, gather data and, you know, answer that question in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I don't know if push back is the right word, but I would say not everybody who writes those uh, research studies, I would consider a brilliant thinker, but there are some really interesting perspectives. Uh, TG and I were also talking about uh, a guest we interviewed recently who uh, does almost entirely quantitative work. So, you know, she's figuring out if teachers, uh, if students have a sense of belonging by giving them a survey, and your research approach is 180 degrees the other way by actually looking at smaller samples and digging in deeper from them. I actually did. It was it was mixed methods. So I started with surveys and then I was able to go more qualitative into some some interviews um, with that. So, yeah, and I, I will say about the just going back to this. Um, some brilliant thinkers and some not. That's the other thing that you get out of a doctoral program is really yeah. the ability to evaluate that and to identify the quality of, of research and to find, identify, you know, reliable, uh, valid studies to base your work on. 
Yeah. Just throw that in there. No, it's it's good. I I will. You know, I in a certain sense, um, becoming a researcher humanizes. You know, I, I a guy who's out there whose work I've read a lot, Russell Gersten. Um, you know, I I'm in awe of what he does, and you know, but you run into him at a conference, and he's just a human being like everybody else, and. Um, it's interesting to have conversation. I had a conversation with Doug Fuchs uh, last year about the recommendations he made for uh, the practice guide, the latest practice guide in mathematics. And, you know, it's it provides this context that I think few teachers have access to. There's a kind of reverence for research, you know, that somehow it's like research in physics or medicine, you know, that it it's it's a definitive result. Research shows it, it never shows. I say that a lot. It it indicates. It suggests. Um, a good uh, su- a big supporter of All Learners Network, Marilyn Burns, has no time for research. She's like, sure. Every time you pull up a study to prove something, I can pull up a different study that proves the opposite. So. I appreciate that grad school gives you a perspective on how to use that stuff and where it's appropriate. Yeah. Karen, I'm so glad you can join us. Uh, All the things we're talking about right now is what makes me love all learners so much because when we work with schools and districts, it's all about what is it you need and how do we help you move forward? It's not, hey, here's our package thing we do um, and we're gonna help you do it. Uh, We certainly have some things we do, but, um, but we are most concerned about meeting the needs of schools um, and teachers. So for you, when you hear the term teaching math so all learners can learn, what kind of what immediately comes to mind? Well, as I said before, I think having high quality instructional materials are a good starting place. Um, that, you know, when you have materials that are well aligned to research-based standards, when they um, promote um, research-based instructional practice, when they have um, built-in resources for um, affirming and supporting all types of learners. So, you know, whether it's differentiation options for um, support and for challenge, whether it's um, English language learner support, support for students with disabilities, to have those things built into the curriculum Um, But it also has to do with usability, right? So do teachers have the educative support that they need um, built into that curriculum? Do they have access to resources that are going to help them implement it effectively? So that's a starting place. Um, I think, you know, research suggests, John, that... um, Students who are in classrooms with high quality educational materials are more likely to have effective opportunities to learn. Um, However, in order for that to happen, really depends on the support structures that are available for teachers. Um, And that's everything from, you know, uh, effective uh, professional learning communities, um, uh, coaching support, time set aside for uh, them to do the preparation and planning needed to teach effectively, ongoing professional learning support. Um, But what's really important, I think, is that 
just like you know students aren't cookie cutter they don't get you know the same thing isn't appropriate for every student the same is true of teachers and so that support that we provide for teachers needs to expect the needs and concerns of those teachers to look at their instructional reality that they are operating in and customize the support that's offered to ensure that they can translate that into more effective practice. So those things together are what are going to ensure that ultimately students are receiving an education that is uh, meaningful, accessible, affirming uh, to who they are as learners. So Karen, when you talk about high quality materials, can you give some you know, describers or characteristics of what you would uh, consider to be high quality material? Um, you know, I, I think they need to be standards based and, you know, standards could mean a variety of things in different places in the country. Uh, the common core standards are used widely throughout the, the, the United States. Um, but different countries, different states have taken those um, or taken the, the research and adapted those. But as long as there are well thought through standards that are aligned to research based learning progressions, um, that's a good starting point. Um, I would say that being aligned to process standards or mathematical practice standards is uh, as important or even more important sometimes than the content. Um, having uh, uh, research-based instructional practices in that, in that content area, so supporting uh, things like student discourse, opportunities for student voice, opportunities for visual models, using and connecting different representations, um, effective mathematical modeling, all of those things being built into uh, the way the lessons are taught is critical. And then access for English language learners, students with disabilities, with disabilities students um, who need additional uh, a challenge or the opportunity to um, extend their learning, all of these things need to be built into the curriculum. As well as, I guess I would say, assessment opportunities. So effective, authentic assessment opportunities to allow teachers to identify student needs and, and respond. So I guess my question is, can you actually do that? I mean, we, we, our official stance toward curriculum at All Learners is that we're agnostic about it, mm -hmm. right? While we believe there are certain curriculums that provide advantages, in the end, we think that teacher's skill trumps everything. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. And I think um, it's both and, right? I think materials um, can be evaluated for, for their quality. There are certainly some that align more closely to uh, these characteristics of high-quality instruction materials than others. But um, an effective teacher who is, you know, uh, prepared to, with a deep understanding of mathematical content, the pedagogical knowledge of how to teach effectively, could take just about any um, curriculum 
and find ways to implement it correctly, effectively. I keep slipping with that term. Um, the, the issue is that places significant demands on teachers. Um, and when we've got teachers who are juggling so many plates already, uh, finding materials that are user-friendly and are designed in ways to uh, minimize the amount of supplementing modification that teachers need to do, uh, I think is, is a support that most teachers really appreciate. Karen, we're, we're doing a book study on uh, Peter Lillenhall's uh, Building Thinking Classrooms. Yeah. And so uh, I'm just wondering when you talk about high quality materials, they should be linked to standards. He actually talks about right in his research, it suggested that uh, using non-standard based- <coughs> Non-curricular uh, materials. Non-curricular materials, right. yeah. Like how, how has that um, impacted your thinking about you know, I, I really appreciate that, and I, I think that there is a place for that um, within the instruction. One of the most um, powerful ways to build student confidence and identity uh, and agency with mathematics is to give them something that is um, open-ended enough and accessible enough that they can... Um, it entices them into the into the task. Some of the most powerful experiences like that have no numbers in them whatsoever. That's right. Um, and when I've used those with students, I've found that they're more willing to to try to express an opinion, and as they do that, they build the sense of identity and agency that I have something to offer, and I can. Um, make progress in a in in a problem solving scenario, and I have the um, the tenacity to persevere through that, even if I don't know the procedure and I don't know the answer. Um, often, how many times have you set a math task in front of students and they take one fraction of a millisecond to glance at it and say, "I can't do this. I don't know how." Um, and so where those non-curricular non tasks come in is, I think, building that sense of um, agency in, in a math classroom, centering student thinking, centering student voice. Where I would push back a little bit is that um, I think most teachers don't necessarily have the bandwidth to compile those into something coherent uh, in the absence of a curriculum that gives some guidance on that. Um, and so, while I think those non-curricular tasks are a really important element, to have something that is designed in a coherent way to align to research-based learning progressions is also very important. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you said earlier that the practice standards may be, in fact, more important, and I'm right on board with you there. I don't have any particular horse in the race around the Common Core, um, but I will say it's pretty common in commercial curriculum that 
the problem solving is all sort of shoehorned into some of these uh, standards rather than promoting the kind of creative, um, logic-filled, discourse-filled, uh, mathematical thinking that goes into these more complex tasks that Lillian Dahl is talking about. And that's where the teacher professional learning comes in. How do we cultivate effective teaching practice with, with teachers? How do we help them look at any task and um, implement it in a way that draws out these student practices that are, are you know, what effective mathematicians do and the types of questions that I ask, the way I pose the task, the way I align it to um, mathematical goals that are, are leading toward meaningful uh, learning. Those are the things that teachers can learn to do effectively. Um, what, we, what we know as we see teachers implement curriculum is that there are, you know, it doesn't matter how clearly laid out a curriculum is, teachers are making thousands of instructional decisions in the moment that affect what the outcome of that lesson is going to be. So if we look at, um, you know, the input of a lesson and the output of student learning, what happens between those start and end points, what's inside the box of, and it's those teacher decisions that they're making. So, so equipping teachers to make those decisions in ways that are going to maximize student learning is, is what our task is. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. That's very, sure. that's really interesting. So what are, if you were to describe overlying knowledge or dispositions, right? Because it's impossible to, even though, again, many commercial uh, programs seek to do this, it's impossible to give the teachers all those tiny decisions. At a certain point, they have to have the agency to be able to make their own decisions and guide students in a particular way. So if you're, if you're framing this for pre-service or in-service teachers, what are the big ideas around making instructional decisions that are going to have the best outcomes for students? I mean, I think for myself, NCTM has done a nice job of putting those together into these eight effective teaching practices. Now, there's nothing magical about the number eight. There's nothing magical about those particular um, terms. We could write different ones, but they do provide a nice framework for, um, you know, if I'm working with pre-service or in-service teachers, they provide some nice um, ways to talk about the important elements of effective teaching practice. And Karen, you're referring to the principles to action, correct? Yes. So in principles to action, that was back in 2014, but there's been a lot more work that's, that's gone on with those since, um, is, you know, what are these eight effective teaching practices? And then how do they interact with each other? So I think, you know, it all starts with what are your goals? Um, and to define those goals, you're thinking about what is the meaningful mathematics that uh, is that this um, that I'm that I'm wanting to to develop in my students. Now that could come from standards. That could come from um, 
you know, these non-curricular tasks, but to have a starting point of what are my goals for what I'm wanting to see nurtured in this group of students today in this lesson. Sure, but you can, yes, sure, but a teacher who says, um, okay, I know what I'm, what's important for me to teach today. Okay, kids, I'm going to show you how to do the cross products algorithm to solve proportions. That's a really important thing for us to do. You need to be able to solve proportions to reason proportionally. Here's how I'm going to show you step by step how to do it. And now you get to practice 50 times how to do that. So that, yeah. that teacher has identified what's important, but I think we would agree that's not an especially effective way to teach, yeah? And so that's where, you know, you break down those types of goals. Are they, you know, performance goals or are they learning goals, right? And so am I, is my goal to have students, you know, perform a particular operation, perform an answer-getting task, or is my goal to have them learn something about those proportions and those relationships and how they operate, how they affect each other? So with teachers to help them identify the mathematics that's there and find some learning goals around them is a great first step for that very reason. Then you look at what are the tasks that we might offer. We could offer them the worksheet of 50, you know, proportions to solve, or we could provide them something where they are unpacking this, which is going to lead us more, which has more potential or affordances for achieving the, the goals. Um, so it's selecting tasks that are effective. Um, to align with those goals. So I think starting in those places with teachers is um, particular skills that we can, can work with teachers on that will help them um, get started with, a, with whatever curriculum they're using. Don't you think that ultimately it's kind of a frame that as educators we need to think about um, the things that students need to make sense of for themselves versus the things that are social conventions that we kind of just have to tell them. And it's not whether or not you show and tell or do kind of, you know, discovery learning, it's, it's understanding which parts you have to do that with and when you do that. Right. There's a, there's a time and a place for, for any of those things, you know, the, when there is a particular convention about something and you're trying to get kids to guess it, you know, no, no, no. Not yeah, right. Conventions, yeah. but I think conventions might be the only thing. Obviously, kids aren't going to create conventions, mathematical conventions yeah. or symbols, or um, but almost anything else. I think there's a loss if the kids aren't. Well, my opinion is my experience actually with a lot of teachers is. Uh, if the kids aren't building it, then they're probably just faking it. And actually, Lillian Dahl, you know, again, with a very small sample, and, you know, I love sure. the kind of research that he does, but there's that argument. Yeah. He, he says what we observe in classrooms all the time, that a very small percentage are trying to make meaning of the math, and a whole lot of kids are doing some version of faking it or ignoring it or dismissing it. Mimicking, yeah. doesn't he call it mimicking? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's absolutely true because we have, you know, a, a system that rewards that, right? 
Um, and so, which is precisely why I quit math as a kid, because it was, you know, I, I was very good at mimicking and I was very good at answer getting. Um, I was a beautiful problem performer. Um, and I had, I found no meaning in it, no purpose. And I looked ahead and I saw, you know, where does this end? There's always another class, another procedure, another problem to perform and why, what's the purpose of it? And it wasn't until, um, I was able to see a purpose beyond just getting an answer that I, I discovered that there's so much more to math. That you know, we we've, system. I'm so glad you say that, Karen, because I think like, I think back to myself in high school and I was just, I just wanted to get A's. Like I didn't, it didn't, I didn't care if I understood. <laughs> I didn't care if I learned anything. I just, I just thought the, the goal of like high school was to get good grades, right. you know, and I got good grades and that was great. And my family rewarded me for that right. and liked it, but looking back now i'm like gosh i just wasted so much time like not actually learning well it's right. not like that's changed i mean i think that's still you know i i tell the story often about a research project i was involved with with the caput center and uh essentially it was it was replacing algebra one with an inquiry-based calculator curriculum where kids explored Covariation and linear functions, and there was a lot of pushback from honors class. They still track them there. Honors class parents, because they said, you know, when when uh, when the teacher shows my kid how to do it, my kid gets A's. But when we're doing this problem solving stuff, like there's no guarantee they're going to get it. They might not get an A. Like that doesn't work for me. And of course. Along with that was the fact that students in the lower two quartiles were showing high rates of growth that they had not shown. It's sort of one of the one of the drivers of this knowledge about all learners. Yeah, all really means all, but there has to be a pedagogy shift to access that all. And there there are a group of people who are trying to pin. Um, the U.S.'s low math scores on a, uh, a new curriculum as if, as if people are actually doing this inquiry stuff that we want them to do, right? It's everywhere I've ever been, and especially outside of Vermont, it's the same way it was when we were kids. Not happening. Yeah, not, not happening. That shift is, I mean, that is, at All Learners, that's kind of the shift we're looking for is yeah. that shift in perspective. Yeah. Karen, what were some of the things in the, the research that you did that you found as ways to best support teachers in really using high quality materials and using it well? I think in terms of um, professional learning, it starts with understanding teachers and understanding their needs, which of course starts with listening to them and respecting um, their instructional reality of, of what they're, they're dealing with. So uh, to throw out a traumatizing term for John, uh, I had to do a theoretical framework for- Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I, for a theoretical framework, I used the 
the concerns-based adoption model, which is um, has a long history, decades of history of use at um, uh, kind of studying um, innovation in schools. And one of the dimensions of that framework that I used was the stages of concern. And so it's looking at teachers and understanding what their concerns are and how those look different from teachers to teacher and understanding their needs. And so that's where I used first some, some quantitative methods used a standardized um, uh, survey um, that was developed through that concern-based adoption uh, model uh, research and was able to kind of stratify my sample of teachers into these different stages of concern. And I'm not going to go into all the details of what those stages are, but they, they fall broadly into three areas. Um, there are teachers that are dealing with, with self-concerns, which is everything from informational concerns. What's this about? Um, what, uh, what, what do I need to know to, you know, to do this? To personal concerns, which would be like, um, do I have what I need? To be able to do this, what's this going to require of me? Um, to things like, you know, do I even have the bandwidth for that? Either because I'm juggling so many other things in my school, or because of things that are happening at home. That do I have what I need to do what this this curriculum is asking me? What are going to be the consequences if I'm not able to do this in the way that I'm being asked to? So those are all sort of self concerns. Then we've got task concerns, which is the you know, nuts and bolts of how to do this. You know, what are, what am I going to do with all of the materials? How am I going to set up my classroom? Um, how do I unpack my boxes of curriculum? What, you know, how is it all organized? What do I, you know, how many copies do I need? Um, so all of those nuts and bolts of the task of implementing a curriculum. And then finally, the third group is dealing with impact concerns, which is how do I implement this in the way that's going to have the greatest possible impact on my students? How do I collaborate with other teachers who are teaching uh, effectively and improve all of our practice? So we've got teachers at all of these places. And these aren't good teachers and bad teachers, experienced teachers and new teachers. These are just teachers for a variety of reasons that are at these different places based on their needs and their reality. So it starts with understanding those, recognizing them, and then aligning, understanding what their needs are based on their, their concerns and how to support them. I, I was really interested in the fact that you were using the CBAM for your study. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, I think of it as an ed leadership tool. Mm -hmm. um, is, is, that, is that the perspective you were taking for this? I think so, in the sense that, um, you know, but, but what is that leadership, right? You know, my doctorate is in curriculum and instruction, in educational leadership and curriculum and instruction, but I have never, purposely, I've never gotten an, an administrative credential because I'm not so much interested in that end. I'm interested in curriculum and instruction, teaching and learning, and how to be an effective leader within that context. So it's still educational leadership, but from a curriculum and instruction direction instead of an administration direction. I, so, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, when I was looking at other programs, I sometimes think I would have been happier 
uh, in New York in a, a leadership program because they're much more practical. There, there was a point um, in a class, I almost got my, I was always in trouble because uh, I was older and a little cynical. And um, we were talking about, we were having one of those classic graduate school, how many angels fit on the head of a pin discussion. And I said, God, it would be just terrible if we actually did some research that improved practice. And the person leading the class was not at all offended. She said, well, that would be nice, but that's not our job. And I'm like, what's our job? And she said, we're creating new knowledge. Like we're, we're scientists, we're creating new knowledge. And I remember thinking at that moment, that may be your goal, and I have no issue with new knowledge, but if it doesn't help kids and teachers, it's not as interesting to me. And I noticed that a lot of ed leadership is way more focused on that than more theoretical math ed. And that's precisely why I chose to do an EDD program rather than a PhD program. And it's still research-based, and you're still learning a lot of those skills, but it's how does this um, apply to a problem of practice? And um, to really uh, do a practice-based dissertation research. So it's it's you know the, I, to me that concerns-based adoption model is yes this is a theoretical framework but how can that help me understand this particular practical real-life situation this real teacher sitting in front of me who has real needs. Uh, and real concerns, um, it's a framework that helps me understand that. I think something you said a little bit earlier that's so important, Karen, is the whole idea of uh, the way to help teachers implement things well is to start by listening to them. Right? I just see so often, I remember, this is the reason I do what I do, because I used to sit in professional development opportunities that were awful, and done by people that didn't know what they were doing, or at least from my perspective, um, and and did so much of like do as I say, not as I do. Right. And I was always, it just always baffled me that we're expecting teachers to teach in a certain way, and yet we're treating teachers in a way that we're we don't want them to treat students. It just it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Right. Well, there's yeah, it's there's something about the professional development environment that can get wonky at times, right? Because I'm sure you've all sat, you've all been part of giving professional learning to a group and somebody's sitting in the back reading the newspaper or, you know, the poor gym teacher is supposed to be there because there's nowhere else for her to go. And, you know, it would seem like professional learning, of course it happens in every profession and of course it should be tailored. But at the same time, there's that disconnect, you know, an administrator will want to check off a box, yet, right. you know, we got the curriculum, we had somebody come in and go over it with the teachers, so it's good. So part of what I, I was aiming for in, in that research was to come up with a, um, a framework, so to speak, that you could recognize these different sort of types of teachers and identify something about their concerns. You know, in the moment, particularly if I'm, I'm um, coming in from the outside to do professional learning with teachers, 
they may not be people that I know well, work with over time on a, on a you know long-term basis, I need to sort of quickly make sense of common characteristics of different types of teachers. Yep. And so what I did was I, uh, I created research-based caricatures. And I know the word caricature sort of has negative connotations, but it's, at its base, it's basically what are the salient characteristics of this person? We can exaggerate them a little bit and create sort of a family resemblance, if you will. And so what are the characteristics of a teacher with self-concerns? And how does that look different from a teacher with task concerns or impact concerns? So that I can see those, uh, those facial features, if you will, and recognize, okay, what I'm hearing from this teacher as I'm listening to you, this is someone who is, you know, solidly in that task concern stage. If I know that, I can, in the moment, say, these are going to be the types of things that they're worried about and how I can tailor what I'm providing for them to that need. Um, if I am dealing with teaching that has self-concerns, such as, do I have the bandwidth to do this? What's going to happen to me if I, you know, am not able to implement this well? And I'm sending them, they're giving them this impact-based PD and say, you know, here's how you use and connect representations within this curriculum, and here's how you can, you know, facilitate meaningful discourse. That teacher is going to sit there and become more and more um, concerned and perhaps even become resentful that their needs aren't being validated. Um, and it can actually make the implementation worse. So if there's this mismatch, um, you know, we all know, and we've all probably been the teacher who comes out of a PD and our response is to close our classroom door and do it our own way. Um, because whatever was being presented didn't align to our instructional reality and our needs and concerns. Wouldn't you say ultimately um, that the design of doing a day or two before school starts of professional <laughs> development, regardless of what it's on, and then just packing up a bag and leaving and, and not coming back is probably less effective, regardless <laughs> of the types of teacher or, right, that, you're, that are sitting in your professional development, than, than doing little chunks and doing them over time and having time to maybe do some coaching in between. Um, Anyone who yeah, anyone who has a teacher friend or, or partner in their life knows that in those day or two before school starts, much less the first couple of weeks of school, they don't have the bandwidth for anything beyond just surviving and getting through the day. And so trying to pack something on top of that is, is really disrespectful of, of what those teachers' needs are and what they're trying to accomplish. So, you know, it's not that we can't do some professional learning at the beginning of the year, but we have to be really thoughtful about if we're doing that to make sure that it's really well aligned to probably at that moment in time, those task concerns of, I need to get this unpacked, I need to get this set up in my room, I need to be prepared to teach this lesson the first day, I need to, you know, that's really where teachers' heads are at and, um, 
if you're not aligned with that, they're going to be sitting there seething about everything on their to-do list that they're not having time to get done. There's a there's a whole group of teachers out there who are hearing you say that and are applauding or twinkling yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever. Um, Karen, it, we're just about out of time. Is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with um, in terms of your thinking about instructional materials and the good they can do in classrooms? Yeah, no, I think we're at a really exciting time um, in, in education. There's so many challenges, um, but with those challenges come opportunities. You know, the pandemic, um, yeah, it's created some problems, but I would say it's more accurate to say that it's exposed problems that were already there. Um, and has raised the attention and the urgency around these, these issues. Having students that are, um, have missed learning opportunities and the opportunity to be successful with grade level content, this is not new. Um, and it's going to be around long after the pandemic is over. So we are now drawing some attention to those things and have the opportunity to uh, address them more systemically and effectively. I think there's been so much uh, good research that has come out in the past decade or two about what uh, building some of these frameworks of what do high quality instructional materials look like? What does high quality instructional practice look like? What does high quality professional learning look like? Um, we've got a lot of, of tools to work with. Our challenge now is to bring those together into um, well-designed supportive systems that meet teachers where they're at with the challenges that they're facing every day in classrooms that are um, probably greater than they've ever been before. Um, and teachers are hungry for that type of authentic support. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for being with us today. Thank you so much, John and TJ, for having me here, and uh, it's, it's great to talk with you. Remember, you can find a recording of our podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com or on Spotify or Anchor, search ALN Math Talk, along with free resources like our high-leverage concepts, high-leverage assessments, high-leverage progressions, high-leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, all rights reserved. Executive producers John, I was just thinking Tapper, and TJ the designer Jemison. Spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert Fly in the Water, Micro Brew Stats Loving Laird, who reminds us we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Join us next time for more amazing discussions about interesting math topics and hopefully more fascinating folks like you. See you next time.